What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, first of all, Michael, happy holidays. Uh, We've reached that time. And today's episode is going to be a Christmas Day preview. Like always, the NBA has five games scheduled uh, for Christmas, which is on a Wednesday this year. A little bit of a wonky schedule. I'm not sure why we're sticking to December 25th here. It would have been nice if we could have maybe moved the whole day up, just call it a three-day weekend on one, one way or the other. But alas, it's right in the middle of the week. And I'm going to give you a quick rundown of the five games, Michael. And then I want you Mm -hmm. to carry us through a ranking process of those five games based on watchability and how you're going to avoid your family, uh, you know, in terms of prioritizing (laughs) basketball over social time, right? So the five games are as follows. Boston Celtics at Toronto Raptors, noon Eastern on ESPN. Second game is Milwaukee Bucks at Philadelphia 76ers, 2.30 p.m. Eastern on ABC. The third game is the Houston Rockets at the Golden State Warriors, 5 p.m. Eastern on ABC. The fourth game is the Los Angeles Clippers at the L.A. Lakers, 8 p.m. Eastern, ABC. And the final game, the nightcap, is the New Orleans Pelicans at the Denver Nuggets at 10.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. So, Michael... Let's just pretend I'm in your family and we're having the negotiations about when lunch is going to be, when dinner is going to be, who's opening presents. What is the number one game that you're scheduling the rest of your Christmas around this year? I feel like this is a really easy one. It's It's got to be Clippers-Lakers. Like it, from star power to just on-court intrigue to the stakes, the fact that these two teams are probably... Uh, the two best in the Western Conference, or definitely the two best in the Western Conference. I mean, that's this is what everybody wants to see. There's no question about it. And let's be honest, I was going to set up a debate for our rankings, but I'm guessing that you and I and like 98% of basketball fans around the country or around the world really are going to agree on the one through five rankings this year in terms of what the best games are. So mm-hmm. real quick, as like a narrative reset uh, on Clippers-Lakers, they played opening night. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, quote-unquote, outdueled LeBron James. Uh, LeBron looked a little bit tired down the stretch of that game. After that game, the uh, the Lakers have basically looked unbeatable, and the Clippers have gotten Paul George back, who they didn't have on opening night, and they've looked uh, incredible at times. And then every once in a while, they they lay an egg. So you've got the the battle for L.A., the possible Western Conference Finals preview, uh, likely the top two seeds, like you mentioned, or at least the two most feared teams, and probably the two most stacked teams as well, if we're talking about you know talent and depth, at least in the Western Conference. Now, Michael, I tasked you with homework for this episode. I said, give me a stat uh, for every home team uh, that's going to blow people's mind or at least get us talking uh, about uh, these games in maybe a different way. So I'm curious, what is your stat for the Los Angeles Lakers, because they will be the home team uh, on Christmas after being the road team on opening night. Right. So I, I think this stat will not surprise a lot of people, but LeBron James has assisted 86 of Anthony Davis's baskets this year, oh, which is geez. which is the most uh, any one teammate has assisted any other teammate in the league. Uh, can you guess who is number two? Oh, man. No, not off the top of my head. Hit me with it. Okay. Okay. So it's Ben Simmons to Tobias Harris. Oh, wow. With 60, so 63 assists. So there's a 23 assist gap in between first and second there. And 
if you want to look at so that that's the first that's the gap between first and second the the gap between uh second and or i guess if you drop 23 assists from second is 22nd with brad beal to rui achimura so the, the the point I'm trying to make is that like the LeBron to AD connection is absolutely insane right off the bat. I think we all thought it would be really effective, but their their, their chemistry has had like no. There's been no adversity with this team. I mean, they just they clicked from the moment they started playing with each other. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the Hong Kong protesters have put up the the biggest defense against the Lakers of anybody in the entire world. <laughs> I mean, other than that misstep from LeBron. You know, before the preseason game that just blew up into a you know a crazy story for 72 hours where he's going at Maury and getting everybody upset, they've basically been unstoppable. Um, that number is fascinating. I mean, that's a crazy outlier. I wrote a column about this time last year kind of laying out the possibilities of a LeBron James and Anthony Davis pairing and trying to kind of walk through and and dream about what it could mean for both those guys because they were at very different stages of their careers 12 months ago. Of course, AD is just stuck in New Orleans, basically stranded. It's not going well. LeBron is on a winning team with the Lakers, but it's really difficult to see what's his path to his title given the Warriors were still the Warriors and uh, you know the Lakers were just kind of you know, limping along. And it has played out basically exactly in the dream scenario that I envisioned. And as you're describing, they've made it look so easy that we're already taking it for granted a little bit. I mean, that number is outrageous. Their highlights on a nightly basis are just absolutely crazy video game stuff. And it's been so consistent that uh, I feel like everyone's just sort of, you know, blocked it into their brain as like, yep, this is the new reality. We're dealing with it. So uh, that, that's an awesome stat. Here's my stat for the Clippers, and it, it ties right into this. So LeBron and AD, um, when they share the court together, they are plus 12.2 uh, from a net rating standpoint. So that's excellent. And they've played a bunch together. Um, the Lakers have had a you know actually a wide variety of pretty successful lineups but when LeBron and AD are out there you know to start games you know to to close games out they're plus 12.2 mm-hmm. but Paul George and Kawhi Leonard when they're on the court together and obviously it's a smaller sample size because of the injury to Paul George and you know him coming back a little bit later because of the shoulder they are plus 14.4 so they're actually a oh. quote-unquote better duo than the Lakers duo. Does that surprise you? And the reason why is their defensive rating when they, the Clippers have both those guys on the court is just very, very low. So they're just playing excellent defense with the, both those guys together, as you would expect. Would you have guessed that, Michael? I uh, No, I would not have. And I know that the defense has been great, and I know that uh, you know, PG shooting the lights out this year from deep and the supporting cast that they have is probably a little bit more well-rounded than the one that the Lakers have but with, with LeBron and AD. But that's still pretty shocking given, you know, just every time I watch the Lakers and LeBron and AD are on the floor, it seems like they're up by 15 points and they're just running high pick and roll and the defense has absolutely no idea what to do or... They're just feasting in transition, and LeBron is throwing these kick-aheads to AD, and he's going one-on-one in isolation and just dominating whoever he's guarding. So that 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 does surprise me a little bit, and it's probably a little scary for the rest of the league that they're already clicking so well. 
with the Clippers. For sure, and they've actually had a bunch of lineups uh, either without those guys or just only one of those superstars that are also performing at a really high clip. So they're kind of on schedule. I think the Clippers are better than their record indicates, um, and I think that will bear out you know, as this season goes forward. They've had some injury issues. They just got Landry Shamit back. He's a key piece for them. Uh, and so to me, um, they're a little bit of a, a sleeping giant. Um, one thing that I find interesting about this Christmas matchup between the Clippers and the Lakers is is kind of how it's a prism for the star players. Like you'll remember after opening night, LeBron was like, oh, this isn't a rivalry game. You know, neither one of these teams is where they want to be. Okay, like cool headline, but nobody <laughs> believes you. And I would not be surprised at all if the Lakers came out and were just gunning like crazy for this win to send a message. So that's one thing to look at. On the other side, the Clippers... Our, their personalities are just so interesting. So Doc, you know, took a little bit of a light shot or maybe a love tap uh, to the Lakers and LeBron about their load management uh, approach. I think the I love this. Yeah, I love it. Doc Rivers was like, you know, we're doing what works for us, and the Lakers are just going to do whatever LeBron says. I think was his quote, <laughs> um, which I think is factually accurate, and it was a joke. I mean, he delivered it in a joking manner, but at the same time, it's you know a little bit of a a uh, little bit of a nudge. And then when the Clippers stars were asked about Christmas, Kawhi's like, I'm not going to even give you a quote about it uh, because we're playing another game before the Christmas game. So he just completely shut it down, had no interest in describing anything about Christmas, the holiday, the game, the Lakers, the city, nothing. And then Paul George did a spectacular like two minute ode to Christmas where he said literally nothing but made it clear that he cares a lot about Christmas so like the key personalities here I just think it's hilarious to watch on this type of a, a stage because there's going to be a lot of people watching I expect big ratings for that game um, just to see you know those guys personalities and their their varying approaches come through so I, for sure there's no question that's the game you've got to make sure you have time for do the presence in the morning have dinner before that game. Make sure you're around the TV ready to rock for Clippers-Lakers. Okay, Michael, let me hear your number two game on the docket. So I think number two here has got to be Milwaukee Bucks, Philadelphia 76ers. You have Giannis, who's probably going to win another MVP. The Bucks are, they're just so much fun to watch. Even when Giannis is not on the court, the way they move the ball, the way everybody knows where they're supposed to be. They're a well-oiled machine. And then going up against the Sixers, a team that is just humongous when healthy, and the Embiid, Simmons, Giannis beef that was last year where they were shouting at each other, dunking on each other. I can't wait to see who matches up with who, uh, how they guard Giannis, if Giannis is going to defend Embiid in stretches, or if he's going to try to lock down on Simmons, or if he's just going to, you know, be one of like a cornerback in those in the cornerback guarding a number one wide receiver, and he just eliminates Tobias Harris from the contest. There's so many different stylistic things to keep an eye on. Both teams are pretty good defensively. It'll this, this is going to be a lot of fun. Well, yes, as a Giannis Inc. board member, I am not only excited about this, you know, Clippers Lakers uh, game, I am over the moon at the possibilities that are available to Giannis on Christmas, right? Because would you agree with me that even though he was MVP last year, we he maybe didn't have that pure breakout moment? Like if it really came, it might have been in the Celtics series where he just kind of like punked Kyrie as that series unfolded, right? And just won that matchup. That might be his breakout moment. I think the basketball intelligentsia fully appreciates him at this point. 
but he hasn't like won the Olympic gold medal with the whole world watching, right? He hasn't been in the finals previously. Uh, so to me, there is still uh, room to work before Giannis Inc. has reached market saturation here. And I'm hoping this is going to be a big one for him, right? Because high profile matchup, another real rivalry. Uh, I think legit bad blood between him and Simmons, him and Embiid. And then um, on top of it, he's just playing absolutely ridiculous basketball right now. And he's even being held back kind of by his own coach again because he's not playing that many minutes. I mean, it's being held back intentionally to kind of save him from wear and tear, but he's under 32 minutes a night this year in part because they're just killing people left and right. So um, I still think Giannis kind of qualifies as like overlooked, under-discussed. And you know, if he comes out and really turns in a signature performance, uh, you know, I would expect that to kind of be like potentially a career highlight for him. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Uh, when I think about the career highlight for Giannis, it's probably the buzzer beater at Madison Square Garden, but that was that was a few years ago. Um, so you're right. I think that the you know having the national spotlight on him in a game like this against uh, a team that has superstars on it. You know, I just want to shout out Chris Middleton really quickly because, you know, you just mm. talked about mm. how Giannis has been under-discussed and uh, maybe not appreciated as much as he should be by everyone who loves basketball. Chris Middleton remains the most underrated player in the league to me. He's basically shooting 50-40-90. He's got to be a lock for the All-Star game, right? Because... Like the Bucks can't have one All Star, and he's by far their second best player. Well, uh, isn't it fair to say like sh- Boston guys like you would really like Tatum to eventually grow into be a player like Chris Middleton? I mean, that'd be a great best case scenario for oh, Jason Tatum, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Tatum is going to surpass Middleton in about two weeks. But um, Did you say ten years? No, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Middleton deserves more credit for you know. Obviously, his offense is so smooth, he can score at all three levels. Uh, One of the best outside shooters in the game, you just can't leave him alone. And I'm trying to formulate a piece that I'm working on right now about how, you know, everyone discusses how the Bucks are built around Giannis, where all the all all the players compliment him but if you look at it and when Giannis is off when Giannis is off the floor and Middleton is on the floor it's like Chris Middleton could not be in a better situation he's got all these pieces that compliment him and when he's on the floor without Giannis their offense still hums because he is so effective offensively in so many different ways yeah, I mean, when I talk about the biggest winners of 2019, I usually circle Lil Nas X, DaBaby, and Chris <laughs> and Chris Middleton because Chris Middleton made his first All Star game. He got his first max max contract. He won his. Uh, he went deep in the playoffs for the first time, and he made USA Basketball. Like that is, like I mean, he basically hit the grand slam for a basketball player who is you know relatively obscure. Uh, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago. Uh, he really burst on the scene. The, the concerns for me are, okay, uh, the whole FIBA World Cup thing did not go great for him, right? They really could have used a little bit more offensive punch, him stepping forward as a main guy, and he just, it wasn't there. I don't know if you want to blame him, blame Pop, uh, blame the point guards, whatever. Uh, I had circled him as somebody who could maybe, you know, show a little bit more than he has uh, as the number two guy in Milwaukee in that environment and it didn't happen so that's a little bit concerning and then also you know it's it's just a ruthless standard for him when he's being compared to number two stars like 
Paul George, uh, you know, and Anthony Davis, right? Like if, if that's where we're doing these matchup breakdowns, like in a potential finals uh, situation for him to be the number two guy and right. you're, you're necessarily losing those matchups. Uh, it's just, it's almost unfair for him, but I agree with you completely. Very, very good player, underrated, and definitely an all-star. I mean, he should be on the uh, roster, and I think he's the type the coaches will reward, especially given Milwaukee's record. The fact that he has, you know, he's great personality, no issues off the court, none of that stuff. Coaches will uh, will make sure to take care of him, I would assume. Give me your stat for the Sixers, man. Okay, so, you know, I picked the Sixers to come out of the East uh, before the season began, and defensively, I have no worries about that being still possible. I think their defense has been great. What has been super troublesome is whenever Joel Embiid and Al Horford are on the floor together. So Philly's offensive rating, when those two share the floor, is 100.7 uh, points per 100 possessions, and that is three points worse than the Golden State Warriors, who have the worst offense in the NBA. Woof. So it's it's like you need Horford on the floor at the end of games, or you would like Horford on the floor at the end of games just because of what he brings just, you know, as one of the smartest players in the league and defensively. And, you know, on paper, he makes sense. He's He can pass. He can screen away. He can space the floor. Um, but he just doesn't get the touches, and he doesn't seem to ever be in rhythm when he's on the floor with Embiid. And I have a follow-up complimentary stat. When Horford's on the floor without Embiid, Philly's offense is in the top five. When Embiid is on the floor without Horford, they're slightly below league average. So I don't really know what all that means, but it's it's pretty interesting, and I think it's a problem for Philadelphia. There's no question it's a problem. Uh, will it be a fatal problem? That remains to be seen. Is it as simple as we're about to enter 2020 and you can't play two centers together at the same time? Is that what it just boils down to? Like, there's just no way around it. Um, I think the only other team that's having success playing really big like that would be the Lakers. But when you look at Anthony Davis, I mean, you could call him a center, but he's a vertical threat constantly. He is incredibly mobile. He can get out to the three-point line easily. He can cover a wide variety of defensive matchups. Uh, you know, of course, Al Horford is versatile, but you know, trying to play him as like a power forward and in, in against certain lineups, I mean, that's tricky. Um, and then also, Anthony Davis, you could throw the ball to on the block. He can get you something, and he certainly can get to the foul line. But he can also stretch the court very comfortably as a shooter on the perimeter, but also as a like a pump fake and drive past a guy threat on the perimeter. You know, Horford's offensive game, while valuable and certainly uh, you know underrated at times because of his passing ability, screen setting. Uh, knowledge it's just not as dynamic as davis's so i think they're almost setting him up for failure when he plays offensively alongside Embiid. you know what i mean especially because the the lead ball handler in a lot of those lineups is a complete non-shooter in simmons so uh, the shooting issues and, and the spacing issues are you know pretty prevalent like i'm not sure we should have expected it to work offensively and maybe it should be better than it is right now but I think we might have just missed on that one as a, a basketball intelligentsia. We might have needed to be significantly more skeptical about how this would play out on the offensive side. Yeah, I think, like, first of all, your your point about the Lakers and comparing AD with with Horford is is taken with, you know, if you look at that roster, like the centers there, JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard, those guys are on veteran minimum deals. And Al Horford is making 
a lot more than the veteran minimum. So just in terms of roster construction, like I get why they that were attracted to Horford. They want they want insurance for when Embiid is out, and they want insurance for uh, you know when Embiid is just on the bench because in the past they've been so bad on both ends when he takes a seat, and they've been better uh, uh, when he's not on the floor because of Horford. But that's great for the regular season and preserving Embiid's body and all that. But I feel like you need him on the court. You need to find a way to make it work chemistry-wise. And Britt Brown doesn't even play these two a ton. You know, they start the game, they start the first half, or the second half, excuse me, and then sometimes they'll close together. So I just, I don't know. I just think it's it's bad. I don't know how you fix it. I don't well, think let me ask you this. It. Let me sure. ask you this. If they don't make a big trade during the regular season, can you foresee a situation during the playoffs where Horford gets benched? Like he, he just gets moved to the second unit and they try to find a different lineup to start games. Easily. I also, I think there will be trades to be made, but I, I definitely can see that happening. I can see him being a 16 to 20 minute per game player and he's only on the court when Embiid is on the bench. And look, that's just not smart team building. That's not how you allocate your resources. And this team needs a lot. They need pick and roll ball handlers. They need more playmaking. Uh, they need more shooting. So uh, I just don't think Horford accentuates Embiid. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, when you have a player who can be an MVP candidate, every player on the roster should accentuate his skill set. Horford just doesn't really do that. So it's an issue. For sure. I'm going to give you my my stat here on the Bucks real quick, and then we will move on. Um, you know, of course, it's going to be Giannis Love. I mean, like, come on, surprise, surprise. Like, what do you think for me? <laughs> but as of this recording right now, Michael, Giannis ranks first in the NBA in usage rate, and he also rates first in the NBA in defensive win shares and defensive rating. And longtime listeners will know that my entire worldview, not even just basketball worldview, is through the, you know, the lens of Michael Jordan worship, you know, essentially. Uh, even Jordan never did that, where you're basically the most trusted and empowered offensive player in the entire league, the number two scorer in the league. Simultaneously, you're having the biggest defensive impact in the entire league by the major sort of advanced metrics, right? So it's not just that you have the best reputation and you're winning defensive player of the year in the same season as you're winning MVP, um, which certainly, you know, Jordan can say that he's done. And I think you know, who else, like maybe Akeem, you know, somebody else has done that. But yeah. right now, like the numbers say Giannis, you know, the biggest, most overwhelming percentage-wise threat from a usage standpoint, uh, and his efficiency is is excellent, of course, simultaneously, the biggest defensive impact guy in the league. That's pretty wild, man. It is. And his PER also leads the league and is like four and a half points higher than it was last year when he led the league. So, I mean, this guy is super terrifying. And the three-point shooting, which we've discussed, is, you know, it's going up in volume. He seems to be, I mean, when I watch him play and he, he'll pull up for three just because they're leaving him open and I kind of just, I don't want him to, but he's trying to prove a point and it's the regular season and usually they're up by double digits when he's doing it, so it's fine. But uh, when he when those start falling and you have to guard him closer and he gets that first step by you and, you know, he's developing also as a passer, someone who's who can read the floor better than he could last year, I just... 
when he doesn't have any more weaknesses, like, what is the NBA even going to do? Like, let's just call it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't know what you do with someone like that. No, I mean, uh, well, you worship, you know. I mean, certainly that's what you <laughs> that's what you do if you're a Giannis Inc. board member. Um, no, the last thoughts here, I'm glad they're playing this one on the road for Milwaukee. I want to see how Giannis responds to what I would expect to be a pretty intense environment. I think uh, it's just a better setting for this kind of a matchup on the showcase game. So the schedule makers, kudos to them. They nailed this one. Um, the other thing I do want to hear, though, coming out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin in general. Guys, if you're upset that there's all this buzz that Giannis might leave as a free agent in a couple of years, there are some things that you can control, like your devotion to Giannis. I want to be reading a lot more stories about people getting full body tattoos and other like just crazy devotionals to Giannis. I want to see houses being painted with, you know, Bucks colors. You don't have to put Cream City on the side of your house. Don't worry about that. But certainly we could get, you know, a, a giant deer logo on your garage door. I think that should become a thing across Milwaukee and its suburbs. I think we should definitely hear a lot more about tattoos, Giannis related tattoos. I want to hear about a spike in baby names being named Giannis in Milwaukee. Um, no question about it. I also want to see more local companies naming products after Giannis. I need a complete takeover here, right? Because I still feel like not only is he underappreciated nationally and globally uh, as an entity, but I don't think he's like, this guy needs to be on Mount Rushmore right now. I think we need to just put him onto that Brett Favre uh, you know, level uh, from a Wisconsin sports standpoint, and I'm not totally sure we're there yet. Most of that judgment is being made on one trip to the Eastern Conference Finals last year and just watching their games um, on television. But I kind of expect fans to break down in tears when he plays, you know, just out of like sheer appreciation. <laughs> and so I'm just saying, Milwaukee, like if you're mad about these rumors, look within, step up your own fandom uh, and see where it goes. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Okay, hey, Michael, tell me what your number three game is on Christmas. Okay, so... Number three has got to be, just because of process of elimination, it's got to be Celtics-Raptors. Um, you know, the Raptors uh, lose Kawhi Leonard coming into this season. We're not sure if they're going to be breaking up the band. You've got a lot of expiring contracts on the team. And instead, Pascal Siakam takes this massive leap into borderline MVP contention. He's terrific. The supporting cast has rallied around him. Their defense is terrific. And 
So it's cool to see them finally get a Christmas Day game after they lose the most talented player in franchise history. And then obviously you have the Celtics who are a little banged up right now, but you know we've seen Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker really coalesce in a really nice way. And when healthy, I think they are... Maybe not as good as every team in the Eastern Conference, but they are as as competitive and they're as flexible and uh, as balanced as anyone. So it should be a really good matchup. No, we were tossing around a, a few different ideas on Kyle Lowry trades uh, on the last couple of episodes. Did you want to get in the mix on that? Like, do you have a favorite idea of where you would send Lowry or, or if you would send him if you were Toronto? Yeah, I... So my, I have a few, but, you know, I'll limit them to, I think, my favorite right now, which is, it's very simple, straight up trade. You don't see these too very, too, too very often, but uh, it's Kyle Lowry to his hometown Philadelphia 76ers for, oh. for uh, Tobias Harris. One Ooh. for one swap. <laughs> uh, well, walk me through why Toronto would do it. Okay, so... Toronto does it because, you know, obviously Tobias' Tobias's contract is a lot. And I think that'll scare off a lot of people who think that the Raptors need that space to, uh, to get Giannis in a couple summers. I mean, I'm not too worried about that. I think if, you, if Giannis declares that he wants to go to Toronto, you can clear space for him. It's not the end of the world. And by then, Tobias Harris's contract will be eminently movable if you need to get off of it. Uh, I just think, like, if you can get a, a prime wing, win-now player at, uh, you know, a coveted position who can do a lot of things offensively for an aging 33-year-old point guard who, uh, you know, you're he's a, he's a franchise legend and everything, but if you can cash out uh, with him and get someone like Tobias Harris— I feel like you just you got to do it. And when I look at it for the Sixers, it's more like when I look at Tobias, you know, we just talked about the Embiid Horford uh, uh, combination, you know, those two on the floor together at the end of games, you kind of put Tobias Harris out of position a little bit. I feel like he's miscast. He's their second leading scorer. He's having a fine enough season. He shut the hell out of the ball recently over the past few weeks, but they they would just be instantly uh, the best team in the Eastern Conference, in my opinion, if they got Lowry for him. I just feel like that balances out their roster in a way that we haven't really seen since they've become contenders. If you were Lowry, would you want this trade to happen? Would you rather just kind of stay in your comfortable digs, not too much pressure at Toronto, you know, uh, hangover type season? Or do you want to take your shot at another title, your hometown situation set up for the future, uh, you know, maybe your last chapter as an NBA player. Like, do you want this trade to go down if you're Lowry? It's an opportunity to be a legend in two cities. So, and one of them's your hometown, and one of them's where you are the most beloved player in franchise history. Uh, so, yeah, I would be pretty pumped if I was him. And you get to play with, I mean, it's like, it's not like his role will be restricted because they need him. They need him to play make. They need him to do all the little Kyle Lowry things that the Raptors needed him to do last year because Ben Simmons can't do them. So the opportunity to play with someone like Joel Embiid, I think, is very attractive to a lot of players. I think he'd love it. I think he'd fit right in. The the fans would obviously like find him endearing immediately. Uh, there would be a connection instantly. So I, I, I think it's a perfect fit for him. 
And I understand why Raptors fans are probably poo-pooing this, but Tobias Harris is a great player. And, you know, would you rather nothing for Kyle Lowry? Or like, I, this is probably the best you could possibly get for him. Um, well, my first in- initial reaction is just like, anytime the Sixers are involved in a trade, my first thought is, or at least a trade rumor, my first thought is like, how is Elton Brand going to lose this? And I don't know how we got here so quickly. Um, and I know that sounds like kind of a jerky response, but man, like the, the even the original Tobias Harris trade, um, I'm not sure that one went out, uh, worked out so well for him. Uh, the Jimmy Butler exchange of assets and having him uh, walk, at least they were able to get back Josh Richardson. So that was a little bit of a save. It's not like Elton Brand is a complete disaster. It just feels like he loses, not spectacularly loses uh, on a lot of these exchanges. And the more of those that add up, the more desperate you get in a way. And so I, I don't know. I would just worry that like this trade would happen and then Lowry would just like fall off a cliff. And then be like, wait a minute, what happened? Like sort of like Mike Conley in Utah, like same deal would happen in Philadelphia. Um, but this is not a logical interpretation of, of what you're laying out. This is more just like um, – dealing with the uh the cloud cast by the Sixers right. here over the last couple of years uh yeah. it's a very interesting concept um l- l- give me your uh your stat for the Raptors oh my stat for the Raptors uh so they allow the most threes in the league per game 38.7 uh over half of them are wide open which also leads the league and opponents are only shooting 35% on those wide open threes, which is the third lowest percentage in the league. So I feel like even though their defense has performed really well and, you know, they scramble around and they force a lot of turnovers and they do protect the rim and, you know, guys like OG Ananobi and Pascal and even Rondé Hollis Jefferson are super versatile and effective. Uh, I feel like they've been a little lucky. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when that luck runs out and things turn around a little bit. So what you're predicting is like 14 threes for Kemba on Christmas is, is At least. basically what you're, uh, what you're forecasting. Um, so real quick on the Celtics side of things, I mean, we've been through them a little bit in recent episodes. They got a lot of guys who are in the mix for All-Star, whether it's Tatum, whether it's Brown, uh, whether it's Kemba. Um, they held the fort down when uh, Gordon Hayward was injured. Um, you know, in in pretty impressive fashion. The vibe, I think by all accounts, has been excellent this year compared to last year. They're a fresh, brand new team. They're, you know, they've got Kyrie so far in the rear view. Um, You know, it's almost tired to bring up his name at this point. My stat for you is actually one that you have mentioned recently on the podcast, but I think it's worthy of highlighting. The real plus minus ratings came out not too long ago, and this is uh, ESPN's sort of advanced analytic that t- attempts to take into account a player's impact on the game uh, without focusing on who he's playing with or uh, necessarily the opponents, right? So it's trying to strip everything out to get down to one number that represents pure value. In the entire NBA, the top five, LeBron's one, Giannis is two, um, Harden's three, Kawhi Leonard's four, and Jason Tatum is fifth. And when you look at the Celtics, uh, other players, you know, like I mentioned, it's a balanced roster. Jalen's 38th, Kemba is 47th, and Gordon Hayward is 52nd. So when we're, when we're in this all-star conversation of, you know, which, which of the Celtics deserve to go and so on and so forth, this stat, this metric, which has usually been very, very good at predicting or at least, uh, you know, highlighting 
who the very best NBA players are. Uh, personally, I think RPM is very good at the at the edges. Like it's great at identifying fantastic players. It's great at identifying just awful players. And then you know there's room for interpretation in the middle. Um, how are you feeling about this, Michael? Is this accurate? Does is Jason Tatum you know really like a top five level guy? Is he certainly a cut above his Celtics teammates from an impact standpoint? I mean, I expected him first or second, so this is a total disappointment. Um, no, Oof. Jason Jason Tatum being top five, obviously. Like throughout his entire career, the Celtics have performed better when he's on the floor. Um, still only twenty one years old. This is just his third year, but that's a trend that I think is 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 not a fluke. Uh, you know, he's just so good at fitting in beside any type of in any type of, of lineup beside any group of teammates. Uh, so, you know, there's really no, uh, like, obvious flaw with his offensive game or his defensive game, particularly right now. He can guard so many different positions. He can be on the floor in so many different spots. His passing is coming along. He's making guys better. I mean, his ball handling, uh, there was one play the other night against the Dallas Mavericks that was just like, I, I cannot even begin to describe it through an audio medium like you need to see it to believe it and uh so he's just been terrific i mean the the field goal percentage has been really low because he was not hitting layups earlier in the season um but just he's just effortless effortlessly great at getting his shot off whenever he wants and again you come back to the age you go back to just the trajectory and what he'll be uh you know in two three four five years and it's just it's it's really good to see for the celtics um did not expect honestly though for him to be top five uh this early in in rpm oh it's pretty wild man um you know there's no question about it i do think that this christmas day one way to look at it is you know a fantastic platform for pascal and tatum to reach people that maybe they haven't reached before. And often this first game on the docket uh, is not worth watching, right? Like you can just kind of sleep in through it. Usually it involves the Knicks or somebody. Um, in this case, I'd say wake up early, guys. Like this, this could be a pretty uh, interesting game uh, just given you know some of the fresher faces that are involved. All right, Michael, give me your number four most interesting game on Christmas. This is where it gets pretty ugly. Um but my number four is the New Orleans Pelicans and the Denver Nuggets. And, you know, I could have gone with the other game, but I I think, like, the Nuggets deserve a little bit more. Well, the Nuggets deserve a little bit more attention, I think. And the Warriors are just so bad that I can't. I, I have no interest in watching them play basketball. I mean, the Pelicans aren't exactly setting anyone's house on fire, but... Uh, the Warriors are just terrible. I don't want to watch them play. So I got the Nuggets, Pelicans here, and at the four spot. All right, yeah, let's dig in on the Nuggets a little bit then. So we had a question from Open Floor Globe member Connor. He writes, The barrier of entry to contention for the Denver Nuggets is clearly getting a second star, specifically a guy that can break defenders down and score on the perimeter consistently at a high level. They want Jamal Murray to be that guy, but he's just not quite there yet at age 22. I guess my question is this, do you want to see the Nuggets back off a patient developmental rebuilding program and try to fast forward to a contender level this season? Maybe they could trade for Drew Holiday or Chris Paul, or would you uh, be disappointed if they continue to play the slow game and possibly lose in the first round this year? 
when is it the right time to get more aggressive with the roster construction? So, uh, Michael, that's a, a really key point. I know you wrote a piece not too long ago on the Nuggets and basically their insane continuity, how they pretty much brought everybody back uh, from the previous year, how they're using a lot of the exact same lineups from previous years where their starters play a ton of minutes together, their second unit guys play a ton of minutes together. And, you know, I think the takeaway from that is, hey, it's working, right? But it's not blowing the doors off people. Right. Is there opportunity for them to shake it up? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a catch-22 for them because, as you said, you know, continuity is kind of what they're hanging their hat on. And defensively, they've made a jump almost exclusively because of that continuity. Now, they have a lot of really talented individual defenders, but those guys are, you know, everybody knows everybody else's tendency. Everybody wants to uh, help each other out. I mean, when you... The, the advantage of you know losing in heartbreaking fashion as they did last year in Game 7 of the Western Conference semifinals is that every when you bring everybody back, everybody knows what that feels like, and everybody wants to prevent that from happening again. So in reporting that story you mentioned, you, know, you go around and you talk to the players, and that's the first thing they talk about. And... Uh, you know, when someone makes a mistake, they don't really get on each other that much. They just, you know, they rotate over and they know how to help, when to help. Uh, they study because they switch so often. They study really intently every player, every player on the opposition's strengths and weaknesses instead of just who they figure they'll be defending, which not every team does. Uh, so I think that has helped them quite a bit. And you look at the offense, the offense has been... Uh, a work in progress for sure, but I feel like that's just Nikola Jokic kind of working himself into shape and that the ceiling on this team's offense is a lot higher than what we've seen so far. But, you know, going back to my initial point, like it's a catch-22 because in the playoffs you do need uh, that second superstar. And I have little faith in Jamal Murray being that guy for them. And so do you make a move? Do you offer Michael Porter Jr. and Gary Harris and Malik Beasley for Drew Holiday? Do you make that call? Um, you do that, and then you, guess what? You break up that continuity, and you really don't know what is, what's ahead uh, for your defense uh, or your offense. And so I don't know what they do. I mean, Paul Millsap isn't getting any younger. Mason Plumley and Jeremy Grant are about to hit free agency. So do you keep everything together and just kind of wait out what's happening in Los Angeles? Or do you do you fast track this thing? It's a tough conundrum for Tim Connolly to deal with. Yeah, I think with the Millsap factor, he's been really important for them, you know, basically since he got there. I mean, they play a lot better when he's healthy than, the, than when he's not healthy and so forth. I think he's at the, the point, though, where you have to shop him as, you know, a potential way or a lever to upgrade at that spot or to get yourself a long-term piece at that spot in terms of whether to fast track or not at this point I wouldn't if Jokic was having a career year and I was completely bought in that this guy could you know carry a team through the postseason like he did last year then I would be much more interested in hitting fast forward um, if he's you know kind of inexplicably up and down you know, by the time you get to the trade deadline and some of these, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to call it slumps or just, you know, inconsistent effort. If those issues continue, I'm not sure what the big rush is, right? Because you're supposed to be on his timeline. So if he's not carrying his weight completely, um, I don't think you need to like, you know, bend over backwards and accept a bunch of risk and break up a, you know, a pretty deep roster 
uh, just to you know cater to him if if he's not on that level and frankly that's probably a message I would deliver to him too it's like you know what do you want out of this season you know have that heart-to-heart conversation are you still you know in this mindset where like you want to be the Tim Duncan of of the Denver Nuggets and you think that we could be a contender right now um, if so okay like we'll work with you but let's see it you know I I think it's reaching uh, you know that moment uh, for that conversation but I would not be in a big rush uh, at this point I believe in Murray more than most people I'm not sure this is going to be the year um, but I'm still pretty you know bullish on his long-term potential to be that number two guy I think to fit there with um, Jokic in terms of their offensive styles is really good so I wouldn't be rushing to introduce you know kind of chaotic elements there and I think it helps that they're not a high profile team I think they escape some of the intense scrutiny and pressure that other franchises might receive and so you know if they just kind of chilled out or if they you know, made a smaller trade that involved Millsap you know for kind of a longer term replacement at that spot um, you know that wouldn't surprise me give me your stat um, for the Denver Nuggets so before I give my stat, uh, I I just want to ask you about the Millsap thing because that's really interesting. You you actually think that moving Millsap is is would be a wise decision this season? Well, I don't think they're going to win the title with them, right? And so then now you're playing for the future, um, and I'm not sure they're one trade away from being a true contender either. So right. you know, to me, he's important. Um, but when you look at their core guys, I mean Jokic. Harris, Murray, they're on a totally different timeline than Millsap, right? I think he's given them exactly what they wanted, helped establish a defensive identity, you know, provided structure for them, brought some professionalism that I think that locker room needed, you know, three or four years ago, whenever he first got there. Um, I think it's been a mutually beneficial situation. Um, But to me, it's kind of like the Lowry deal in Toronto, where if you're not going to be a title contender, this guy's getting older. Uh, you need to, f- f- you know, think about what your next stage looks like, and you're going to have a, a, you know, a decent-sized hole at that spot. Um, you know, we're, we're always talking about, say, Portland or uh, you know, Phoenix trying to get in the mix for some of these power forwards who are going to be available. I mean, I think to me, uh, Denver should be in that mix too. Very interesting. So, so I take it Michael Porter Jr. would be off the table for you if you were Tim Connolly. Michael Porter Jr. is fine. Like, I just think he gets over high. I think, I mean, he's kind of too polarizing, right? Like, their coaching staff probably doesn't like him enough, and the, the people on the internet like him way too much. Um, you know, I think he's decent. I don't think he's that special right now at this point. Yeah. And I don't know, from a fit standpoint, are you telling me that he's the long-term solution at, at power forward, given that he's, you know, pretty ball dominant, you know, maybe hasn't been the cleanest offensive, uh, you know, fit candidate, has the health concerns? I'm not sold on that. Yeah, Malone's been trying to work him into the the rotation recently, and it's been it's been touch and go. So, I mean, I would I would I mean, I, if I were Tim Connolly, I would probably be sitting tight with everything and just kind of letting it roll and and seeing what happens uh, at the end of the season. I feel like if this team gets in the playoffs, they do have a inherent advantage over a lot of the teams that they'll be playing just because of the adversity that, that they've gone through. And if Murray suddenly makes another leap uh, over the next several months, and if Jokic looks like the first team all-NBA center that he is, then who the hell knows? Like a sprained ankle to LeBron James sits him out a game or two, and, and you win that series. So um, 
so yeah, I, I I would keep it together. But my stat for the Nuggets, you know, I had this in my story. Forty point one percent of all Denver's possessions are with all five starters on the floor, which leads the league. And also sixteen point eight percent of all their possessions come with zero starters on the floor, which also leads the league. So you know they do not mix and match. They do not play Monte Morris with Jamal Murray. They do not play. You know they'll they'll play Will Barton a little bit with the starters. And he's been excellent this season. Uh, but, you know, they don't play uh, Jokic with Plumley anymore. So they've really tried to separate uh, the starters from the bench group in a way that n- very few teams do. And that really speaks to their depth and their continuity. For sure. I'm going to give you my stat here real quick on the Pelicans. Um, it is this. Lonzo Ball is shooting 37.1% from the field on 10 attempts per game if you're looking at guys around the league who are shooting at least that often at that poor of a percentage there is really only two other guys kobe white uh, a rookie for chicago and mike conley you know sort of the poster child for maybe he just fell off a cliff right so for people who really wanted to believe in alonzo and particularly the lebronzo possibilities of you know him pairing with lebron in this incredible you know, passing dynamic duo for the Lakers for generations to come, or for Magic Johnson, who was, you know, encouraging him and incentivizing him to, you know, become the type of player who gets his Lakers jersey retired. This is not going well. And the change of scenery stuff, being away from dad, I bought into those narratives. I definitely thought it was going to be a helpful thing for Alonzo. And they're losing a lot. He's, you know, was cast as a winning player coming in. I'm not sure he's having the winning player impact that I expected him to have. The offensive game has shown very little development, even though he's tried to rework his shot. Um, And then defensively, the Pelicans are absolute train wreck, which brings me to a question from Zach, who writes, what's the deal with all the guys on the Pelicans roster who are supposed to be great on defense? Drew and Lonzo were touted preseason as potentially the best defensive backcourt in the game. Ingram has always talked about as having great versatility, but these guys are worse on defense than my beloved Atlanta Hawks, who have Trey Young and a bunch of rookies. Were they always overrated individual defenders, or is there just an atrocious fit problem? So it's a great question from Zach. I mean, what do you make of it, and where are you on Lonzo right now? So I'll start with Lonzo. I mean, I, I'm i a huge fan still. Uh, you know, whenever I watch him play, he just does one or two things that I don't see anybody else doing. I think he really treats the game like it's a chessboard. He sees possessions happen before they do. And I think he's a he's a brilliant basketball player. And I mean, he's just I feel like health is a is a concern here. He's worried about getting hurt constantly. He's worrying about his ankles. Uh, his his you know the three point shot is it's it is what it is. I mean, it's not great. He's taking a ton of threes this year, just in terms of you know his own shot frequency. And I, I I don't see someone who can create their own shot, which is really detrimental if you're. Uh, a guard in the NBA. So I do like the defensive versatility. Uh, I do think that he's he's super smart on both ends. And someday he will be a contributor on a, in a winning situation. But I mean, it's been tough. And you know, that kind of leads me into the other part of this, which is just their defense. And I feel like health has been a big factor. I feel like, you know, particularly uh, you know, not having Derek Favors for as long as they did not have him. You know, big men do matter. Rim protection matters. And the fact that you're starting so many young guys 
who have never even played in the NBA before uh, uh, is is you, it's really difficult to to kind of implement a stable defense. Uh, you know, they play JJ Redick a lot of minutes. That is not a good defensive player. Uh, I think effort has been an issue with them as well, getting back in transition. So, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because Drew Holiday is someone who we all tout as this, uh, you know, top premier perimeter defender. You saw him defending KD in the playoffs a few years ago and giving him hell. Uh, he's tough. He's strong. But, like, if you watch Drew Holiday on a night-in, night-out basis, like, he just, he does take plays off a little bit too much for me, personally. And so, uh, like, his reputation is is somewhat deserved, but I feel like it's getting to the point where he's slightly overrated in that way. Um, and I love Drew Holiday, but... Uh, right. So I don't. I don't think we should overlook or underestimate the impact of Zion's injury here. Not that he would be this incredible sure. like defensive impact guy, but I think it just sucked a lot of the excitement and the planning and the strategy out of that group. So when you're talking about okay, night to night, like are these guys going to be locked in as defensively as they can be? Well, if Zion, sort of the the building block, main attraction, the guy who got you on national TV, you know, 15 times early in the season, just isn't there. That's a motivation thing for every single player on the roster. Like it just kind of changes your your perception of uh, what your season's supposed to be. You throw on top of that other injury issues, like you're describing, or, or uh, other absences, and it you know the snowball stuff starts to take place. You know, I wonder if the way they're performing defensively as a team, if if it's going to wind up coming back to bite Alvin Gentry. You know, he predated uh, David Griffin, obviously down there in New Orleans. Um, their defense is significantly worse than I expected it would be this season. Um, it's hard to know how much you take from this year because Zion hasn't even been on the court. And they face, to me, a pretty big decision of, you know, when do you bring him back or do you just decide to punt for the future, which would be, you know, so demoralizing if that's kind of the, the route that they take. Uh, I think it will affect their strategy at the trade deadline, whether it just becomes a sell-off, you know, if they decide Zion's not coming back, they're going to trade Holiday, trade Redick, and just kind of get out of all these players, maybe even trade favors, um, you know, so it could go a lot of different ways down there in New Orleans, and I think the defensive uh, stuff could wind up, you know, being a, a determining factor for Alvin Gentry's future. Okay, we have um, one more uh, game to get through, the the fifth most watchable game of Christmas, would be the Houston Rockets at the Golden State Warriors. I'm going to give you my stat real quick here, Michael. Sure. Uh, of course, it's about James Harden. He's going to be the headliner of this game. No question about it with the Warriors just kind of in pieces. I think this becomes like, you know, can't Harden get 82, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's what the NBA is hoping for in, from a rating standpoint because it's on ABC. It's in a premier time slot. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be not nearly as interesting as they had hoped for, you know, like with a Harden versus Curry showdown. But right now, Harden has five 50-point games this season. The rest of the NBA combined has five. And then if you look at the gap between Harden's scoring average, which is like around 39 points per game, and Giannis, who's at 31 and change right now as we're talking, that gap is a top five gap in NBA history. The only ones that are bigger, Wilt Chamberlain twice, Michael Jordan in his best scoring season, and then Harden himself uh, last year. So, you know, if we're going to just kind of, you know, praise the NBA scoring God, 
and try to build a game around him on Christmas. I think those that's the context you need. I mean, this is historic stuff from Harden. He's doing it like nobody else is doing it this season. And, um, you know, we can all hope that he just kind of channels the Santa Claus beard thing, you know, and maybe just runs that all the way into a historic night against Golden State. No, and then what's, what also is a factor here is the fact that, yeah, they're playing the Warriors, which was their boogeyman the past two years, the team that eliminated them uh, and, you know, sent Chris Paul packing. Like, I feel like if he's in a similar situation to the one that was in Atlanta where they benched him for the fourth quarter where he has 60-whatever points after three, I feel like organizationally they would have no problem sticking it to the Warriors on national television on Christmas. I just, I, I feel like they would leave him in on this for this one. If there was an ever a time to for an organization to run up the score and to uh, exercise demons from like five straight postseasons, this would be it, right? Yeah. So that's I didn't even consider that honestly before you brought it up, but that would be awesome to see. Um, yeah. So I'm just gonna get into my side of this with the Warriors, and that brings me to my stat for the Warriors which I kind of wanted to turn into a small little game of trivia with you, Ben. So if you'll you'll indulge me, very simple exercise just to kind of illustrate what we're dealing with with this Golden State Warriors team. So I'm just going to say three different stats, and you tell me who you think leads the team in said stat. Okay, you ready? Oh, boy. So, so, So who leads the Golden State Warriors in minutes? Ben Golliver. Is it total minutes or minutes played? These are all total. Oh, man. Well, I know it's going to be a trick question. I feel like uh, Eric Pascal is probably close uh, to the top, but I'll just say him. It is Glenn Robinson the third. Well, uh, yeah, so little dog. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next up, I'll only do uh, two more of these. Next up is Shots. Who's taken the most shots for the Golden State Warriors this season? Oh, so this is going to be tricky because you're going to think it's Russell, but he's actually like randomly missed some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pascal's not really a volume scorer. Um, how about, <laughs> what about Alec Burks? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's something else when you really break it down. I remember passionately arguing on behalf of Alec Burks to have more playing time like five years ago. Same. Um, never really worked out. No. Uh, I was watching a, one of their recent games, and every time he shoots a three, it looks like his whole body is like straining and stressed out trying to get the ball up. It's like the opposite of effortless. Uh, so <laughs> Effortful. <laughs> effortful three-point shooting from Alec Burks. Okay, last one, Ben. Um who has scored the most points for the Golden State Warriors this season? Uh, I'm going to just go with uh, Pascal. Am I pronouncing his name right? Is it Paschal? I think it's Pascal. We'll go with Pascal. Pascal. All yeah. right. I'm going with him. I think he's just kind of been their steadiest piece, maybe. Um, and they've had some injury issues. Uh, yeah, to say the least. That's my guess. You, guess what? You finished two for three in this super important exercise. Honestly, well, surprising. That was me. fun. That was yeah. fun. Um, yeah, I watch more of the Warriors than I probably should. Still, um, you know, I'm I'm detoxing. I think from uh, from their great era. I didn't want to go completely cold turkey, but it's been brutal. 
and it is so rough that they could not flex this team out of Christmas. You know, know. and as I say that, watch them beat the Rockets. <laughs> oh, for sure. I have so we, I guess we can close with this, but when I look at this team and this season, big picture, I kind of wonder why Draymond Green doesn't get more criticism. Can you okay. can you can you answer that question for me? Because uh, uh, no, if you're you gonna know, take shots at one of my favorite players, you're gonna need to come out and take the full <laughs> shot. Let's go. No, I just I, I recall you know you routinely having him in the top ten when you used to do the top one hundred, and you know I I'm not a Draymond hater. I wrote this big feature last year about how last year's postseason he was the best he's ever been, and um, how his future was looking brighter because of it, and him taking the game more seriously. But I also thought that it was really difficult to disentangle him and his contributions from you know playing with two of the best shooters who ever lived, two revolutionary two revolutionary shooters, um, and perennial MVP candidates. So. Uh, you know, you look at him right now, his true shooting is the lowest it's been since he was a rookie. His three-point percentage is the lowest it's been since a rookie. He's just, you know, there are possessions where even defensively he's not bringing it with intensity. And, and I understand that, you know, why would he give in, you know, this is kind of pointless basketball relatively. I mean, the stakes must just be so low for him based on where they've been. But still, like zero criticism for Draymond Green. It's a fair point. There probably needs to be some criticism and a little bit of a reckoning on what his value is. I think that he's in a situation where he went from being in the best possible case scenario ever for a player with his skills and his weaknesses to arguably the worst in yeah. <laughs> basically a couple of months, right? So I think if you took Draymond and you put him on an average team with average talent, you know, the old vacuum test, he would still be a very valuable player. Um but if you take Draymond and put him in a situation where he needs to be the not just the emotional leader, the, the, the firebrand locker room guy, but he needs to like carry the offense, that's a recipe for disaster. And I think that most people, even his biggest supporters, would have acknowledged that. The fact that he doesn't have enough talent around him to sort of even be able to convince himself that he can lead an elite defense is definitely a big problem too, right? Because I don't think, you know, he hasn't always played super hard night to night throughout the regular season that's why he comes up with the whole 82 game player 16 game player comparison because he knows he can crank it up when he needs to and it's a good it's a perfect excuse to call yourself a 16 game player as a way to you know put on weight during the regular season and not and not play hard um so we're getting some of that for sure I also think that, frankly, the whole organization is just kind of punting this season, you know, and and just taking all of the pressure off. I understand why they would do it after, you know, such a intense run, not only in terms of total number of games, but high profile games, national TV games, you know, travel situations, uh, you know, going overseas at various points in recent years. Um, and then uh, also just all the scrutiny and the, you know, the drama that they went through. If there was anything I was going to criticize Draymond for, it's that he chased Kevin Durant out of town, okay? And I think that KD has alluded to that at times over the course of this summer. Everybody wanted to downplay that factor last year. And my argument was like a player of Durant's caliber deserves far more respect, even if he's being wishy-washy about his own free agency future than he received. And the fact that the Warriors did suspend Draymond was the right move last year in the wake of their incident but the fact that, you know, Draymond didn't basically just kiss the ring and, you know, make that thing right, um, 
you know, to me, that's was, you know, basically the biggest mistake. You know, we saw the difference that, that Kevin had during the playoffs for that organization. Their entire franchise would be on a different trajectory right now if they had been able to resign him. Like that goes without saying. Um, and so I think he let his pride and his feelings and his emotion get in the way of what was best for the organization at that point. And I think that deserves criticism, just as he did in the 2016 finals when he let, uh, you know, his on running, uh, you know, back and forth with LeBron James get in the way of, uh, you know, him being available for, for game five because of the suspension there. So he is not above uh, criticism by any stretch. Um, but I do think if you're trying to judge Draymond, the player or the force or the impact on the league as a whole, based on, you know, 2019, 20 Draymond, that's really missing the picture. Yeah, no, that's all fair. I have two quick hypotheticals for you that I think are, they're tied to this and kind of tied to the Warriors and tied to Draymond. The first one is, uh, if you were to swap out this Draymond with, a 100% healthy Kevin Durant. How good is this Warriors team? Um, I think they'd be cl- uh, playoffs. They'd be a playoff team in the West because the bar this year for the, that eight seed is not uh, no is shot not at contention. That, uh, high. I wouldn't say that they could be contenders because I mean we're looking at three really good teams, you know. Yeah. And yeah. K- KD is an absolute force. I think you know to me he would be arguably the best player in the league if completely fully healthy 100% healthy this season but I mean you made me list some really b- weird names like 15 minutes or like five minutes ago during the trivia portion and something about Kevin Durant uh Alec Burks and Glenn Robbins in the third it just doesn't strike me as a big three <laughs> yeah that's fair uh, my second one really quick Going back to the Nuggets, and you know, when I reported this piece on Draymond in last year's playoffs, uh, a GM told me that if he was leading the Denver Nuggets, he would be targeting Draymond Green. And so, I ask you, how would you be? Would you think that the Denver Nuggets could win the championship this season if Draymond was their starting power forward instead of Paul Millsap? See, now we're talking. I was thinking about, you know, some other power forwards who were being rumored out there, whether it's like, you know, Blake Griffin or Kevin Love or Danilo Gallinari. Now I'm getting excited. I don't know. I don't know if Jokic and Draymond Green are going to be able to share a locker room without blood being spilled. Um, (laughs) that, 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 That feels like a recipe for for existing tension but i love that move i would do it in a heartbeat if i was denver i mean even if it was like you know multiple first round picks i would bet on draymond i'm still in like look i'm gonna be the last guy off the draymond bandwagon i'm still in right now if if you dropped him into a playoff series you know come may i think he's gonna be one of the best players i was there when he made portland just look silly in last year's western conference finals ran them off the court basically single-handedly um you know with with his end-to-end impact so yeah if i was denver i'd go for it yeah i think i would too and uh in watching i was watching a recent warriors game watching draymond pretty closely and last during last year's playoffs i was kind of like this guy might get a max. Like, he should chill. There's no other free agents in the 2020 draft free agent class. Uh, he should not be signing an extension. And now I'm like, man, it's so he's so fortunate that he signed that extension because I don't know how much money he would be getting on the open market this summer. But uh, 
but yeah, he's uh, it's an interesting test case just when you look at him and how he fits into different with different personnel groups. And this, you said it. I think you nailed it right on the head. Like this is just the worst case scenario for someone with his talent. Yeah, and it's good there hasn't been like some crazy explosion from him. I do feel like his profanities per interview have <laughs> risen considerably this year. It feels like every single night he's dropping f bombs uh, in the post game interviews. I guess I get that, but at least there hasn't been you know some you know, story of him like you know, punching a hole through a brand new wall at Chase Center, like breaking some like $50,000 glass vase that Lakeup had purchased for the the new building or something like that. I'm glad we haven't, it hasn't gone to that level. Although I do, uh, you know, certainly, you know, feel his frustration. All right, Michael, I think we have completely previewed the 2019 NBA Christmas quintuple header. Everybody check out the games on Wednesday. We will be back uh, next week to recap uh, the action to talk, uh, you know, the other news, notes, and maybe trade more trade rumors uh, as we get uh, closer to 2020. Um, Michael, I hope you have a great holiday break. I hope the entire open floor globe, uh, you know, can can get some rest and relaxation in, spend quality time with your families. That's what life is all about. I'll be up in Portland for a couple of days doing that, and I cannot wait to do it. Um, so, Michael, the open floor globe can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com the emails have been incredible lately so keep them coming we're also on apple Podcasts. you can find our page by searching for open floor that's two words when you get there scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word i'm on instagram at ben.goliver i'm on twitter at ben goliver michael is on both twitter and instagram at michael v as in victor pina Hey, Michael, until after the holidays, I will talk to you. Happy holidays to you, Ben, and happy holidays to the Open Floor Globe.